psychological research suggests that maintaining belief in the possibility of a better future is paramount to the health and flourishing of a human being. In situations where the hopeful prospect of a better life is dim or non-existent, people spiral quickly into despair, depression, risky, even violent behaviors. I wonder if you've ever desperately needed hope. Maybe you need a word of hope right now. And if so, I trust that spending a few weeks in the Old Testament book of Ruth may meet you right where you live. We'll be looking at this book together over the next four Sundays. I invite you to turn to the book of Ruth in your copy of the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's just after the book of Judges, just before 1 and 2 Samuel. Short book, only four chapters long. And in this season of Advent, where we grapple with the tension between the already accomplished good of the gospel in the first coming of Christ and the not yet realized flourishing to be brought about at his return, I think the word of hope that we find in Ruth may be especially timely and helpful. In order to show you the the message of Ruth, I want to get just a a glimpse of what the whole book is about before we journey through it uh, one piece at a time. I want to take you to the book's beginning and to its ending. And when we see how the book is framed, we'll understand what the book is, is attempting to accomplish. So the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, it reads this way. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And we learn some important things from that verse right there. First of all, we learn that this the story is situated during the days when the judges ruled. Now, this would be the period of time uh, between Uh, The death of Joshua, who had led the people into the promised land and conquered the the places and allotted the land among the tribes. Between the death of Joshua and the coronation of Saul as the first king of Israel, this period of Judges, which is mostly covered in the book of Judges and partly in 1 Samuel as well, leading up to the, the coronation of Saul. And this period in Israel's history is a notoriously dark period. Uh, In fact, the the theme of the book of Judges is said a couple of times and summed up at the very end of the book in Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is what characterizes this period of Israel's history. There's no king. There's no unified leadership. There's no godly uh, anointed one on the throne to lead the people to worship God and to live faithfully under the covenant, and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. In other words, this is a time of moral anarchy and spiritual unfaithfulness. There's ups and downs. Not all the judges were terrible, but there's lots of downs throughout this period of history. And so, in the days when the judges ruled, tells us, okay, this is a, this is a rough period for the people of Israel. And then we learned there was a famine in the land, the land being 
broadly the promised land, the land of Canaan, where the people of Israel have settled, and particularly, striking, the town of Bethlehem in the region of Judah. And so there's a man from Bethlehem who now goes to sojourn in the country of Moab. And so he goes east and he leaves the, pro- the land of promise. That clues us in right there that things are not right. An Israelite leaving the land of promise where he should be enjoying the presence and prosperity of God's blessing lets us know at least two realities are going on. Number one, things are not well with Israel in the promised land. Which probably means, number two, Israel is likely experiencing divine discipline from God due to their own covenant unfaithfulness, which you see over and over again during this period of history. Those are the book's opening lines. And indeed, it sets the stage for a a grand story. It sets the stage for a corporate reality dealing with all of God's people and the condition, if you will, of their covenant life with Yahweh. And so it illustrates the corporate misfortunes of God's people. Now, if you were to turn to chapter 4 and look at the last few verses, these verses revisit the corporate status of God's people and demonstrate poignantly how he is in the process, even in these dark days, of reversing their misfortunes and providing prosperity and blessing for his people yet again. And in a deeper more lasting way than they've yet experienced. Let's look at the last uh, four verses, beginning in verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, before reading the book in its entirety, we don't yet know how all of those names necessarily relate to each other, except that it's father and son and son and on you go, or what they have to do with the family of this Bethlehemite, this man from Bethlehem who went to sojourn in Moab. But what you can see immediately in verse 22 is that it answers the problem of chapter 1, verse 1. Namely, there's a king. Jesse fathered David. So there is a clear purpose in the mind of the narrator of the book of Ruth to point us to the coming, eventually, of King David. Indeed, from the tribe of Judah and from the city of Bethlehem. And so the book begins with one man in Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah sojourning from Moab because there is no king and because there is famine and brokenness. And it ends with another man from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, who we know will be reigning on the throne as God's anointed leader. The chaotic days of the judges will give way to a prosperous future where God's people flourish under the benevolent reign of God's anointed. And so the book of Ruth speaks a word of hope to the broken and wayward people of God. God intends to show covenant kindness and unmerited blessing to his people. That's the overarching theme of the book. 
And the way that it sets out to make this grand statement about God's kind purposes for his people corporately is by telling us a story of God's specific covenant kindness to one particular woman personally. And so the narrator introduces us almost immediately to Naomi, an embattled and embittered Israelite widow who needs a word of hope if ever anyone did. And so let's look at her story as indeed the rest of this book unfolds before returning to that corporate statement of God's blessing of his people. Let's read verses 1 through 5 of Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi is a woman in distress. The book's introduction sort of unceremoniously rattles off a litany of of bitter providences in Naomi's life. Of course, she's already experienced the famine in the land that was spoken of in verse 1. She lived there with her husband during the famine, and it was bad enough that they that Elimelech decided, we got to get out of here. We're leaving the promised land and going to Moab, this foreign country. And so she's living in that time and in that situation. And she's forced into that famine uh, in the foreign land of Moab as her husband Elimelech searches out a living for his family. Then, tragically, her husband dies. We don't know how. We don't know after how long in Moab that occurs doesn't seem as though it was very long, but it doesn't tell us specifically. But her husband has passed away. And as if that weren't enough, about ten years later, her two sons also die. They've married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, we're introduced to briefly here. And so now, we're told in verse 5, the result of all of that is, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Many of you have experienced the pain of bereavement, the untimely passing of a husband, a wife, a child, a loved one. So perhaps you can identify very readily with Naomi, putting yourself in her shoes. You know, I imagine at times just getting out of bed in the morning takes all the strength Naomi has. Ten years in a foreign land without her husband and her sons. And in her case, the situation is even more dire than just strong, bitter grief. Without husband or sons, she is left in a truly desperate situation. Mary Wilson Hannah summarizes well, that Naomi is being emptied of every man in her family and thus is bereft of all customary means of security, provision, or legacy. In that day and in that culture, more than in our own, 
the, the health and the well-being and the, 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 the security of a woman was tied intricately to uh, her, the males in her family. A husband if she had one, sons if she had them. And now Naomi has neither husband nor sons. And in such a situation, the prospect of a better future, that idea of the hope that things could be better, must seem to her like a childish dream. Perhaps we can understand some of the sentiments that Naomi will voice in the coming verses. We see this unfold. But don't think for a moment that God is absent from this story. Don't forget the message of this book and how the intimate story of God's providence in Naomi's life serves to illustrate that greater message of his intention to show covenant faithfulness and kindness to his people. Naomi's emptiness, her despair, is precisely the context into which God's grace will be received with fullness of joy. And just as that was true for Naomi then, it's true for you today. The hardest circumstances in your life are the dark backdrop against which the radiance of God's covenant kindness gleams. To state it a little more succinctly, God's love shines brightest in your darkest days. Hard days, dark seasons of grief and despair should remind us of that fact and should have us looking for the kindnesses of God in those dark times. There's an old hymn by William Cooper, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, that encourages weary Christians to look beyond the troubles of life, to see by faith the kind hand of God at work for our redemption. And here's one line from that hymn that I love. It says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The hard things in Naomi's life were a frowning providence, to be sure. But what she maybe couldn't see in the moment was the smile on his face as he intended to do good to her and display his covenant faithfulness. Well, as the story continues, Yahweh intervenes and Naomi makes a change. Let's look at verse 6. I'm going to read down through verse 14 right now. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night then should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. 
and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Notice, the Lord has visited his people and given them food in verse 6. It is God's initiating action here that spurs on the plot of the story. As Naomi recognizes his providential hand in this provision of food and decides it's time for her to return home after a decade or so in Moab. This is one of only two places in the book, by the way, where the narrator specifically attributes any action to God. Right here, Yahweh visited his people and gave them food. And then at the very end of the story in chapter 4, we'll see one more time that the Lord visited in a certain way and brought another blessing. And beyond that, all of the, the evidences of God at work are sort of traced through the sayings and actions of the characters in the story and the way that things unfold. But it's important to note that Yahweh here is said to be the one who gave this provision of food. Now, Naomi is clearly well-loved by her daughters-in-law. There is a warm, affectionate relationship between these three women. She urges them to remain in Moab and find new husbands. Remember, in this day, a woman's provision and legacy were, were more inextricably tied to a husband than they are in our own day and culture. And both Orpah and Ruth are reluctant to allow Naomi to leave without them. They say, no, we are going to go with you and return to your, uh, to your people. And notice also that Naomi still has some level of faith in God's willingness to bless. As she pronounces blessing on Ruth and Orpah in verses 9, she says, Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She recognizes that God has blessed the people of Israel back in the land of Judah by providing food. But she doesn't seem to believe that he intends to bless her. Verse 13, she says, It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Naomi's interpretation of the trauma in her life is that God has left her. Or more accurately, that God is against her. God has turned away from me and indeed set his hand against me. I wonder if you can identify with that. Have you ever been tempted to believe that the hardships in your life are an indication that God is angry with you? That he's turned himself against you? He's actually seeking your harm now, the Lord uses all manner of circumstances in our lives to discipline us, to instruct us, to shape us, and I don't intend to diminish or deny uh, that reality. But, friend, if you are a child of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, his heart is never against you. He is unfailingly inclined toward you, to do you good, not to bring you harm. Naomi will be reminded of that in time. In fact, whether she'll immediately recognize it or not, God's purposes for Naomi's blessing and restoration are about to be evident in the clinging of Ruth the Moabite, who refuses to leave her side. Let's look at the next few verses. Orpah has kissed her mother-in-law and returned to her mother's home, but Ruth clung to her. Here's verse 15. And she said, this is Naomi, 
She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Ruth's clinging to Naomi is the language of covenant. When God instituted marriage in Genesis chapter 2, he said a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. When Moses and Joshua in their respective generations urged the people of Israel to be faithful to their covenant with Yahweh, they called them to cling to him and to his word. Clinging pictures a kind of stubborn insistence to remain tied to another and to abide by certain terms. And so Ruth is essentially pledging covenant loyalty to Naomi. I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to lodge where you lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and be buried. She is pledging covenant loyalty to Naomi. And that clinging is noteworthy for a few reasons. First of all, it is a selfless act of love, very plainly. Naomi is almost certainly right that it would be easier for Ruth if she went back to Moab and to her mother's house and stayed there to find another husband, to gain security, perhaps have children, etc. But Ruth is not interested in the easier path. She's determined to show faithful love to her mother-in-law and essentially to become an Israelite. That's what this covenant amounts to, adopting Naomi's home, adopting her people. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And the religious aspect of that is hinted at even more plainly in the fact that Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, it said that she returned to her mother's house and to her gods. There's a religious dynamic there. These Moabites are not worshipers of Yahweh. They're worshipers of other foreign false deities. And Orpah returned to that. But Ruth says, I will leave the worship of false gods and worship and serve only Yahweh because he's your God. And then when she invokes the, the sort of curse of God upon herself, may the Lord do so to me. Notice who she calls. May Yahweh do so to me and more, if anything other than death parts me from you. So Ruth is essentially pledging to her, I will become like an Israelite. I will follow and worship Yahweh and be with you among your people. So it's noteworthy simply because it, it, it's a selfless act of covenant love. Which is perhaps why it's on throw pillows and coffee mugs and the like. It's noteworthy because it will become the means of God's intervention and provision for Naomi. She doesn't see that yet. She doesn't know that yet. But God's plans to restore and provide for Naomi are going to come through Ruth. And if she had decided to stay in Moab and send Naomi on her way to Bethlehem alone, well, the story probably wouldn't be in our Bibles. It turned out very differently. And thirdly, I, Ruth's covenant loyalty to Naomi is noteworthy because it reminds us of God's multi-ethnic purpose in redemption. 
God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, not only that he would be the father of a great nation, but that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The universal scope of God's salvation is implicit in that promise. And we see its fullest expression at the other end of the Bible in the multitude surrounding God's throne in Revelation 7, 9, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we see seeds of it, limited expressions of this promise throughout the Old Testament, such as Rahab, the Jericho prostitute, uh, who was included in the covenant community of Israel after she uh, turned away from the false gods of Jericho and and helped the the spies uh, of Israel. And we see that promise again expressed in Ruth, who by virtue of her covenant faithfulness to Naomi will find that the embrace of Yahweh's own covenant faithfulness to his people, Israel, has room for a Moabite woman who will follow him. So we're reminded of God's multi-ethnic purpose and redemption by this covenant loyalty of Ruth to Naomi. Well, Naomi, whether she understands all of that or not, is doubtful. But she at least recognizes she's not going to change Ruth's mind. And so she stops arguing, and they journey together toward Judah. They make it to Bethlehem in verse 19 and are greeted with shock by the townsfolk. Let's look at verses 19 through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi's desolation is now as clear as it can be. Her friends in Bethlehem are stunned to see her arrive after like a decade without her husband or sons, but with this young Moabite woman. And so they ask, kind of incredulously, is, is this Naomi? Like, after all this time, and these are not the people she was with, are we, is this really Naomi? And her answer displays the barrenness and despair in her soul. No, it's not Naomi, a Hebrew word which means pleasant. My new name is Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And then she gives a quartet of reasons that she should be called bitter. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, I went away full, which in retrospect seems a little strange because she went away during famine, specifically because they didn't have enough to eat. But anyway, I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. She's naming Yahweh as the one to blame, as it were, for this lack, this emptiness. She says, Yahweh has testified against me. And then she says again, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So what we glimpsed earlier, back in verse 13, is now articulated clearly and emphatically. Yahweh has turned against me and has visited disaster upon me. My life is empty because Yahweh has taken everything from me. Just call me This is Naomi's state of heart and mind 
at this moment. There's no correction offered in the text. The Bethlehemite women, the Bethlehemite women don't appear to argue with Naomi, at least not here. Perhaps they exhorted her gently later. And the narrator doesn't provide any pushback, at least not directly. What the narrator does do, however, is to conclude the scene with a subtle hint of the hope that Naomi is so desperately missing, which will set the scene for what will come next. Let me read verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Here, in the conclusion of this opening scene, are two tangible expressions of God's kindness. Evidences that he has not, in fact, turned against Naomi. Number one, she has Ruth with her, right? Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. That's not nothing. She's not alone. And indeed, the hope and the future that she craves will come about through her. She doesn't know that yet. She doesn't know how the story will unfold. But we know that Ruth will be the means by which God answers the deepest longings and the deep needs of her heart. And so the fact that she returns to Bethlehem with Ruth is evidence. God's not forgotten Naomi. God's not against Naomi. And secondly, I hope you didn't miss this, that they arrived at the beginning of harvest. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The chapter opened with a famine in the land of Judah. And verse 6 told us that the Lord had visited his people and gave them food. And here we find it's true. There's a harvest of barley to be gleaned. What grace! God has visited his people. God has provided their needs. And the word that she heard from a far off place that there had been uh, that God had visited and, and brought food to them is now shown to be true. They've returned and there is a harvest. Secondly, the timing of Naomi and Ruth's arrival in Bethlehem, coinciding exactly with the beginning of the harvest, is essential to the story that unfolds in chapter 2 and where the pieces will start to fall into place for Naomi's life personally and indeed for God's people corporately. When Naomi returns, even with broken heart and bitter complaint, she is met with blessing from Yahweh. It is not yet clear to her at this point in the story, but the next three chapters will make it undeniably plain to her and to us. God's covenant kindness can be seen most clearly against the backdrop of human brokenness and need. Just as the frowning providence that Naomi experienced cloaked the smiling face of Yahweh, who intended all along to do her good, so you can be confident today. God's love shines brightest in your darkest days. And whatever darkness you're facing, whatever the hardships and challenges in your life, whatever pain or doubts are burdening your soul today, Advent stands as an immovable rock 
of remembrance. A Savior has come. A promise has been kept. A sinner has been welcomed home as a son or daughter. And in a world where that is true, friend, you are never without hope. Let's pray together.